0: Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. That's Jordan Peterson. Uh, He's talking there about uh, a lie that was spread around in our country back in the 60s and 70s. Back in that time, there was a, a tremendous amount of concern about the idea of overpopulation. Matter of fact, American biologist Paul Ehrlich actually wrote a book called The Population Bomb. And he prophesied in this book, he's not a believer by any means, but he prophesied in this book a looming catastrophe that would bring about the ultimate demise of human civilization. You guys are still here, so clearly we dodged that bullet. Uh, Ehrlich claimed that there were too many people, too many humans on the planet and that we would face mass starvation and millions of people would run out of food over the 20 years after he wrote the book and the planet would, would never recover. It's been 50 years since he wrote the book and it's become clear that that great crisis that we were facing, it's, it's not really a crisis. Uh, as a matter of fact, the crisis that we're up against, is, as Peterson stated in that interview, is actually a problem of, of too few people. We're actually facing a, a population collapse. Um, a healthy civilization requires children. Churches ought to have full nurseries. Daycares ought to be full. Schools ought to be full. That, that's what a healthy civilization requires. If you follow this at all, then the magic number that you're paying attention to is the number 2.1. What is the number 2.1? That's what's called the replacement fertility rate. In order for a country to maintain or grow, it has to be 2.1 or higher. Uh, If you go higher than 2.1, then you've got a growing population. If your number drops below 2.1, then you're facing a shrinking population. And a shrinking population is in fact a, a problem. And we're seeing that problem show up in big ways in certain parts of the world. For example, in Japan, there are too many old people and not enough young people to help provide the necessary care. As a matter of fact, 20% of Japan's citizenship is over the age of 65. If you're over the age of 65 today, you say, well, what's the problem? Well, it is a problem if there's not enough young people to help provide care that's necessary for an aging population. So to help solve the problem, Japan is actually experimenting with robots to help provide care for the population. So imagine your grandparents in a skilled nursing facility of some sort. Instead of a nurse coming by to check on them or deliver their food or provide their medication, a, a robot comes along and brings them the medication or the food that they are needing. Uh, of course, there's economic problems that go along with it, uh, especially if you consider things like Social Security. How many of you like your Social Security check? That's good. How many of you don't think you'll ever see a Social Security check? Okay, yeah, exactly. Um, and that's a problem. When too fewer people are paying in then you have people withdrawing. That tends to be called a Ponzi scheme, and it's unsustainable. You can't have that. It doesn't function. In order for civilization to thrive, we have to have growth. When we're not growing, we are a ticking time bomb for trouble. Shouldn't surprise us, however, because that kind of growth is perfectly in line with God's very first instructions given to human beings. God's very first instruction given to mankind was what? Be fruitful, multiply, Fill the earth, and we're living. He said in the, in the in the interview there that I showed you, we're living at a time where there are more human beings on the planet than any other time. That, that's the time in which we live. There are more people on the ground today than have ever ever been alive at any time before. But all you have to do is drive around this great nation, and you'll quickly see that there's plenty of room for lots more people. How was Nebraska this week? Lots of room for some people out there, right? He said Chattanooga made Omaha look like a, uh, like a small town. And so, uh, uh, just again, drive around. There's lots and lots of room. And I say all that to simply, simply make this point. The world is always gonna be at odds with what God's desires are. I mean, it doesn't matter what the plan is, whatever God has decreed. The world is always going to be at odds with God's decrees. And even something that should be as, as, as simple as subdue and fill the earth The world we live in stands opposed to God's decrees. And sometimes the world will stop at nothing to bring God's desires to a screeching halt. Those things that are in line with God's plan are almost always seen as a threat to a world that's opposed to the things of God. Secular culture screams, there's too many people, we gotta do something, there's too many people, but the Bible reminds us that God wants the earth filled. There's not too many people as long as the earth is unfilled. God wants the earth filled. God even declares it through the prophet Malachi in chapter 2, verse 15 of that book. He says that God is seeking godly offspring. God wants to see children in our nurseries. God wants to see kids in our school. God is looking for that. But this is not the only place where we see this sort of conflict between the world In the Word. You see, secular culture grows very nervous around people who are growing in their faith and obedience to the Lord. They look at people who are committed to Christ and say, they're fanatics and they're extremists. Listen, if you follow Jesus today, the world thinks you are a fanatic. They think you are an extremist. That is the world in which we live today. But God says, I want my people to grow in their obedience and their faith. I want my people to look more and more like me and less and less like the godless society around them. God says, I want my people to be distinct from the world around them. And the world around us doesn't really care for any part of God's agenda. and continues to do what it can daily in its fight against God's plan, but this isn't new. This isn't a a new development for us. The church at Thessalonica was ground zero for this conflict of culture versus Christ. Because for one, we believe First and 2 Thessalonians are some of the earliest written books of our New Testament. And we're seeing this, this drama, this conflict unfold firsthand in the lives of the people who live in the church or who live and, and worship and serve at the church there in Thessalonica. And that city, that ancient Roman city was not excited about the agenda that Jesus brought to their community. From the very first time that they are introduced to the gospel, the city of Thessalonica is not interested in the things of God. They're actively opposed to it, as a matter of fact. But in the middle of all that pressure that was being applied by those who hated the things of God, this little church in Thessalonica kept doing the things that God wanted it to do. And Paul says it was growing. And a church that's growing, not just numerically, but also in its obedience to the Lord, is one of the greatest threats to the godless culture that surrounds it. We find ourselves today moving into the second letter that Paul penned to the church at Thessalonica. Again, a brief amount of time has passed from the first letter to the second letter. We're not completely certain how long it took for Paul to write the the, the, the span of, of time between the two letters. But when Paul sits down to write this second letter, the goal for him is to revisit some topics that he introduced in the first letter and to help this church be prepared for their future. On one hand... It's a very uncertain future. No way to predict the various kinds of pressure and trials that would be applied to this church. On the other hand, the future was as certain as the next morning sunrise because God was ultimately in charge and the promises of God were very much intact. The opening chapter after the initial greeting is one long sentence in the original language, but we're going to break it up into some sections to help put these words to work in our own lives. And while the city of Thessalonica hated the things of God, the church at Thessalonica kept doing what God wanted them to do. They kept on growing. They kept on loving. They kept on being the people of God. So let's turn our attention to our text this week, the opening four verses of 2 Thessalonians. If you're able, I would invite you to stand with me as I read these opening verses from this letter. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to always give thanks to God for you brothers as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you, uh, the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith, in all your persecutions, and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Father, I thank you for your words, for your encouragement through Paul to this young church. We pray that their encouragement might be ours as well. May we seek to model that which is good and reject that which is wrong uh, as we seek to uh, follow and be obedient to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. By way of introduction and overview, this letter opens the same way almost all of Paul's other letters open. It's almost like a form letter. You guys have used a, used a template or something in your computer before. You know, you've got the form letter that fills out and, and I, love the, I love where it starts to put the Latin stuff in there and you can always tell when somebody didn't read everything because they use that, that Latin stuff starts to show up in the letter later on. They missed something. And so this is almost a form letter. It begins with, it's me, Paul, whoever he's writing with, it's to you, whoever you are. In this case, it's the church at Thessalonica. And then it's some sort of theological statement about identity, whose they are, who they belong to. And then he immediately moves into some sort of simple invocation or prayer on the recipients. Much could be said about these opening verses. Much could be made about what Paul says because he identifies the church. He tells us who the church is. And the one thing we can take away from this introduction is that the church at Thessalonica is a Jesus church. Understand the word church. We know the word church means a Christian assembly. We, we use church, we understand that, that church is, doesn't really mean anything else. In the, in the New Testament Greek, the word for church here can be used to refer to any kind of religious assembly or gathering. It could be the church that, that uh, worships some Greek or Roman deity. It could be a, a church of some sort of pagan community. But that's not who Paul is talking about here. This just isn't any kind of religious gathering. This is a Jesus church. The church belongs to Jesus. I remember the church I served in seminary, they, they, we argued about this. They wanted to put my name under the church sign, the permanent church sign. So church's name, Pastor Brian Carroll. And I said, you are not to put my name on the church's sign. I do not want you to put my name on the church's sign, but we want people to know you're our pastor. I don't care. This is, this is not the Brian Carroll church. This is the Jesus church. And so if you want to put a name on the church, put Jesus under the name because it's his church, not my church. They didn't put my name on the side. It's an important distinction Paul is making, and we shouldn't skim through it as quickly as we often do. This is a Jesus church. It is a Jesus assembly. This church at Thessalonica belongs to Jesus. It doesn't matter who the pastor, who the elder, who the deacons. It doesn't matter about any of those things. This is a Jesus church. That's important today. And then Paul often almost always goes into kind of a, what I call these preaching prayers, Y'all know what preaching prayers are? It's when the pastor gets to the end of the sermon and he didn't quite say everything that he wanted to say and so he uses the prayer to kind of throw some more content out there just to make sure he covers all the bases. Well, that's what Paul's doing here. It's a preaching prayer. He's got some things, he's not just he 's not just asking god 's blessings on the church he's got some content here that's important he's got some things here that he needs to say and that's really what all of chapter one of this short letter is 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 this prayer that Paul is praying for the church and so we're going to start really digging into this here in verse three of chapter one and last week we talked about the blessing of god 's work in us to completely sanctify us again 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Paul prays at the end of the letter, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, as we handled those verses, we had to speak to a problem that was created by handling those verses. We've all heard of high-profile believers who've openly recanted of their Christian faith. We've heard of people who have been pastors, and songwriters, and and authors, and all kinds of different people who have openly said, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving my faith. Most of us likely know people who seem to have completely fallen away from their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. At some point in time in their life, they displayed what appeared to be faith, but ultimately fell away because of various pressures and trials. It grieves us because we know those people. Their names come to mind. We see their their face in our minds as we talk about it. But as we begin this second letter, we actually see the product of God working out this complete sanctification. He prays that they would be completely sanctified at the end of the the first letter, but then we get to the second letter and we actually see this actually working itself out because in Paul's opening prayer here, it reveals that God is actually answering his prayer from the end of 1 Thessalonians. He prayed that they would be sanctified completely. We get to 2 Thessalonians and what's happening? They're growing in their faith. They're growing in their love. God is answering the prayer. It should not surprise us because the prayer Paul prayed is completely and totally in line with God's will. If I prayed for you today that you would be sanctified completely, it's a prayer that God would delight to answer because he wants to see his people grow in holiness. And So Paul prays for their complete sanctification. He calls upon God's faithfulness. And what happens? We see growth. We don't see falling away in apostasy from this church. We see a community that is experiencing a good, healthy kind of growth. Paul is expressing gratitude to God for doing exactly what he knew God would do. We talked about those who fall away last week, that those who fall away from the faith are like the bad soils in Jesus' parable from Matthew chapter 13. They either lack sufficient roots to, to stand up to withering heat in difficult conditions, or they're so completely surrounded by the concerns of the world that that, that seed is completely choked out. We spent a lot of time talking about the, the soils that are not conducive for growth. But let us not neglect the character of the good soil. Because in the parable, there was some soil that resulted in good growth, not just not just mediocre growth, but abundant growth. There was a, there was a, a multiplicity of, of what it was able to produce. It had sufficient depth. That the soil provided appropriate nutrition. And we are seeing that happen at the introduction of this letter. He says, your faith is growing abundantly. The love of everyone, that you, that, that's increasing. We are clearly dealing with fertile soil, with good dirt. And the spiritual climate of the church at Thessalonica is good. They're not perfect, there's problems, but the, the the climate of this church is a good one. And even though Paul only had a very brief time there, we see that the Spirit of God is moving, and it's very clear that God is doing a work in this early church. Which raises a question: Does Paul give us any clues as to what makes this church work? What why the soil of this church is so good? Well, it turns out he does but it's just one characteristic that we're gonna talk about today. There are others, but there's just one today. And the one thing that he gives us is this. The church's consistency during difficulty is a primary catalyst for spiritual growth. Again, this is not the only pathway. I'm not suggesting that because the New Testament paints a picture of lots of pathways for us to grow. But one thing the New Testament does teach us is that the way we endure trials and suffering and hardship The impact that that has on our faith is clearly undeniable. Steadfastness, endurance, patience, long-suffering, standing up to those trials and persecutions is always for our good. Now, hear me correctly. I'm not suggesting we go seeking persecution. I'm not suggesting that we all go buy a plane ticket today that takes us into some dark Middle Eastern country where if we expose our faith, we risk being jailed or worse. I'm not suggesting that happens. But when it happens, the church is better for it. Acts chapter 17 reminds us that the church at Thessalonica was birthed out of persecution. It was birthed out of trial. And Paul's letters reveal to us that the church, this church has experienced pressure and persecution from the start. Now, I hate that I need to say this, but they were experiencing real persecution. They were experiencing real trials. Their lives, their freedoms were on the line. I have found that the American church today tends to cry out persecution a little too soon. We, we like to talk about the, the persecution of our politics and all those sort of things. Uh, but let's just say this, especially when we look at what's happening in other parts of the world, and especially when we look historically at what the church has had to endure, folks, we got it easy. Uh, It doesn't matter who's in the Oval Office right now. Compared to other parts of the world, places where this gathering would be illegal, where a gathering in your home like this would be illegal, compared to what is experienced in, in the history of the church, we have it incredibly easy. Now, we saw some glimpses in recent years. We've seen some glimpses of what persecution might begin to look like. When the government targeted the church and said, you can't meet, but the casino can continue to have gambling and those sort of things. That was a glimpse of what it might look like during those COVID lockdowns when the church was targeted for closure while other businesses were allowed to remain open. We, we saw a glimpse of that. I, I believe that the current trajectory of the homosexual, transsexual agenda, I believe that's setting the stage for what might begin to resemble persecution in the coming years. But even still, legal pressure, government pressure, Losing tax benefits, none of that compares to these parts of the world where being a Christian could truly cost you your lives. Because that's the threat that's offered today that if this church doesn't do what we say, we're gonna take their tax exemption away. Okay, that, Jesus is still on the throne. You can take the tax exemption, but Jesus is still king, right, I mean, that, that's not persecution. That's inconvenient, it's not persecution. It's irritating, it's not persecution. The Thessalonican church is a case study for why persecution matters. Endurance through trials is good for God's church. Why? Because the church is growing in its faith and the church is growing in its love. Why? It doesn't have a choice. Who else are you going to look to when the pressure gets turned up if you can't look to fellow Christians? Tertullian was an early church father who lived during the second and third centuries and One of the things he's most famous for saying is that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Go back to the parable of the soils. That blood helps to add nutrition to good soil that helps those plants grow and bear fruit. At the same time, the church is growing in its love because it's enduring trials together. They're all in the same boat, facing the same threats. There's mutual help and mutual support. So if we accept the conclusion that Paul has reached here, it ought to have us asking the question, if the church experiences this kind of positive, abundant growth in the midst of trials and persecutions, then what happens to the church when those trials and persecutions are absent? The American church shows us what happens to the church when she doesn't experience the cleansing fires of persecution. On November 20th, 1620, a group we call the Pilgrims landed in Plymouth, Massachusetts. In England, this group was frequently the target of attacks and persecution. They came to America with the intent of starting a new life where they were free to practice their faith, apart from the strong-arm tactics of the British state church, the Anglican church. Over the course of time, our nation became a bastion of religious freedom. And one of the products of that freedom that we have seen and we revel in is the modern missionary movement. I believe that the United States of America and the church in this country, that no other nation has done more for the Great Commission than the church in the United States of America. I really do believe that. No other church has had the prosperity to be able to send missionaries to the darkest corners of the world as we have been able to do in this great country. But in spite of our efforts to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, our freedoms And our prosperity has taken its toll. Some of the most odious aspects of the American church are a direct result of the abundant freedom and protection that we've experienced. For example, the prosperity gospel is one of the most disgusting theological exports of our nation. And it's not just prevalent here on our, with our TV preachers and all those sort of things. It is growing like wildfire in the developing world. And the prosperity gospel is simple. If you have enough faith, then God will reward that faith with abundance. If you just have enough faith, you'll be healthy, rich, wealthy, all those sort of things. If you just have enough faith, if you just name it into the air and claim it, then God will give those abundant blessings out to you. But let me explain this. The prosperity gospel doesn't play very well in the middle of a refugee camp or in an underground church in some distant communist land. When people have to gather under the threat of their losing their lives, it's very difficult to say that there is anything prosperous about that knowing that your family could be taken to prison because of their commitment to Christ doesn't feel very prosperous, but I can assure you that those people who risked their lives together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ have more faith than any TV preacher that you could call out this morning. And I can promise you that if some future version of the U.S. government decided that it was no longer going to tolerate churches, that those who hold to that prosperity teaching would be the first to fall because it's very difficult to be prosperous when the jails start being filled with faithful saints or when government bullets begin to fly. But even in a less visible but perhaps far more sinister plague, the commercialization of the church is also a direct product of our privilege and protected status. As a just complete honesty, this is a part of the modern American church that I absolutely hate. I hate the commercialization of our churches. Instead of seeing our sister churches as partners in the Great Commission, we're too often trying to compete with one another over limited resources and audiences. In some ways, the Church of America has become like the cell phone industry. Y'all understand that something happened several years ago, the cell phone companies ran out of new customers. Think about it. Who's buying a cell phone today? Who's getting a new, there aren't very many people getting new cell phones today. You might get a new phone, but you've always been, you've been a cell phone customer for a long time. I used to work for a a medical equipment company in college and that business owned one bag phone. Y'all remember bag phones? We had one bag phone The y'all are like, what's a bag phone? I keep my phone in my purse. Is that a bag phone? Whoever had the longest route for the day had to take the bag phone with them so they could be reached if they were out and about. If you were on call for the weekend, you had to take the bag phone with you and it plugged into the cigarette lighter in your car and you had to, uh, it, was, it was crazy. At that time, man, you thought you were, you were the stuff if you had the bag phone. Like, I got my car phone here, I'll, you know. <laughs> and you had to call, No texting. At that time, a lot more people didn't have mobile phones than did have mobile phones. But today, 25 years later, there are very few people who are entering the cell phone market. Very few people are getting a phone for the first time other than a child who is growing up. And so a cell phone company is having to compete with each other over what is basically a finite number of customers. That's how it works now. In a lot of ways, the church seems to be doing the same way. Much of of what we do today isn't about reaching lost people. It's about trying to entice the safe people to allow us to be their service provider. Come to our church, and we'll provide the service. Come to our church, and and we'll meet that need. Come to our church, and and we'll be the very best provider that you can ask for. Our music is better, but their preaching is better. Which one are you going to choose? Let's just saturate the market so that people think they're missing out. If they're not part of our church, can I just say this? All of this goes away if the pressure gets turned up on the American church. Every bit of it goes away. The yard signs, the live streams, the social media posts, the billboards, the flashing signs, it all goes away the day after the First Amendment of the United States Constitution is repealed. It all disappears. And if your church wants to keep its protected status, then you'd better make sure that a certain multicolored flag is flying in the front yard. And I can't help but think that the people who start showing up for church on that day aren't there because you've got more bells and whistles than the church down the street. They're there because they want to meet with Jesus and his people. That's what this is for. Listen, our team does a good job of putting together a worship service on Sunday morning. Our musicians rehearse hard. Our tech team does a stunning job. Our, our streaming group in the back, they do an incredible job of getting it out on the internet so that people who aren't here can see it. They all do a phenomenal job. And as much as we appreciate and respect the work that goes into this, The point of this gathering is not that we can be wowed with the musical talent or blown away by the technical ability or hearing a wonderful, gifted speaker. The reason that we gather here today is to be with Jesus and his people. Strip it all away, and that's what this is about. And that's exactly the basis for what Paul is boasting about at this church in Thessalonica. They've been under pressure From the start. But under all that pressure, the church's faith is growing abundantly, and the people of God are seeing their affections for one another grow as well. And you can't help but think, it doesn't say it, but you can't help but think that the church is adding to its number daily those who are being saved. Our former church had a partnership with a church planning organization in the mountains of central Mexico. And this area was a stronghold for a very cultish version of the Roman Catholic Church. Not like the Catholic Church you got over in Fort Oglethorpe around here. Not like that at all. This this area, you would drive through these little mountain roads, and on the side of the roads in random places, there'd be little roadside shrines that were built to the Virgin Mary. They called her the the Virgin of Guadalupe, and they would have, the, the faithful would bring flowers and light candles and all these sort of things, and make sacrifices, in essence, to these roadside shrines all over this community. One night, we had a mission team in a remote village, and they were showing the Jesus film, you know what this is? It's a missions film that was put together. It was basically a video adaptation of the Gospel of Luke. It's been translated into hundreds and hundreds of languages. It's something missionaries use whenever they go into a new area to try to introduce people to the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an incredible tool that God has given the church to be able to use this film to communicate the Gospel. As they were showing this film in this little shack on the edge of town, the local Catholic leaders began to attack the house by throwing large stones at the house. Our team is in the house, and it is being pelted by the priest and the deacons and the leaders of that local Catholic church. Being, large rocks are being thrown at that house. And again, I, I wasn't there, but my team was there. And, and again, I don't know that they would have tried to harm the people inside, but I think that their goal was to make such a racket that the people could not hear the film and could not hear the gospel. But that night something absolutely incredible happened. The true church was seen as strong and resilient and courageous and the fake church was exposed as being weak and intimidated by the true gospel. In the midst of that persecution, that little church in the village was strengthened and people were added to their number. And that little church in that village perfectly exemplified the Apostle Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Yet I don't think it's important for us to go and seek out actively and purposely seek out persecution but at the same time we must make sure that when it comes that we are ready to face it and we have to make sure that we are preparing the next generation to see it coming and to meet the challenges that it brings with it we absolutely live in the buckle the bible belt I mean, we're not just the buckle, we're the hole that the thing in the belt goes through that keeps the belt together. We're that much in the center of the Bible Belt. It's a demographic reality that we live on the outskirts of the most churched city in America. There are more churches per capita in Chattanooga, Tennessee, than there are anywhere else in the country. That's how much in the buckle of the Bible Belt we live in. We have a local school system that is filled with incredible and godly teachers and administrators. We're gonna have this back to school prayer rally over at Chattanooga Valley Middle School and at no point in time have I received any pushback or any flack or any, we don't know if we can do that. It has been an open door. Bring your churches, bring your prayers, come and cover our school with your prayers. It's been incredible, honestly, to see how faithful so many people in our schools actually are. But you don't have to travel very far at all to see the wind changing directions, we were in New Orleans, Louisiana, a few weeks ago for the Southern Baptist Convention, and I had never been to New Orleans before. I've got the beignets; I'm happy to not have to go back, unless it's for a mission trip. They need some mission trips. Mission trips to New Orleans. Um, we did. We had a late flight out after the the convention. And so we spent Thursday kind of just exploring the city. Almost reminded me of the Apostle Paul roaming around Athens, just trying to get an idea of the of the of the city. And we were on this one street, and had a streetcar line down the middle of the middle of the city of the middle of the street. And the light post, as you looked at the at down the center of the street, had pride flags hanging on both sides of every light post on the street. And I was grieved. I thought, like, just like Paul, I, saw, I see that your city's full of idols, and, and that's an idol. It's, it's, it's opposed to the things of God, and it's showing, a, it's showing a worldview that's not in line with what God says. And I saw that, it's just brokenhearted. I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of these banners hanging off of the light posts. You literally get to the end of the street and turn onto the main Canal Street through town, and on the light post down the center of this street were the banners that welcomed the Southern Baptist Convention to New Orleans, Louisiana. Literally, they, they were in view of one another. And I thought, this is such a parable for what we are facing. This is such a parable, such a picture of what we are one day going to be dealing with. I believe that we are living in a generation, should the Lord tarry, where the freedoms that we particularly enjoy, are going to be withdrawn. And it's gonna come at a cost. And the question that every one of us are gonna have to ask, and our children in particular are going to have to ask, am I willing to pay the cost? Am I willing to stand up for what God says? Am I willing to believe what God says, regardless of how much it costs? And as we face those challenges, May we remember the, the Apostle James' words, James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I'm thankful for your words. I'm thankful, Lord, for the truth of Scripture Thank you, God, for making yourself known to us in such a clear and evident way. Thank you, Lord, that you have told us those things that are in line with your will and your desire, and you have made it very clear those things that are not in alignment with your plan and your will and your desire. Lord, we live in a world that has historically always proven itself to be opposed to the things of God. We've seen the world in which we live that, that hates the gospel. We've seen the world in which we live that, that hates God's children. We live in a world that, that actively seeks to, to murder children because it hates, it hates it so much. But God, your church stands as a place of truth place that affirms your word from start to finish. We affirm the parts that are hard to understand. We believe the parts that are offensive to a lost and dying world because we understand that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. For those who are not in the light, the word of God is a farce. But those who follow Jesus, we are not ashamed of it. And so God, in the middle of a corrupt generation, may we continue to be like the church at Thessalonica. Would we continue to grow in our faith? And would we continue to deepen in our love and affections for one another? And may we work hard to make sure that our minds are ready to face the challenges that are coming that we'd make sure our hearts are ready to face the the challenges that are just around the corner, that we'd keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and plead with a lost and dying world to turn from their sin, to turn from their folly, to turn from their rebellion, and to follow Jesus. God, we love you and we love your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.